This morning we are continuing uh, in the book of Galatians, Galatians 2, and so I'll invite you to look on with me as we uh, read Galatians 2, verses 11 to 16. Hear God's word to us. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically among with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. But because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come to this passage, we... Uh, have been reminded in, in your law and in your gospel that you are the Lord. That you are our God who loves us and cares for us, who provides for us. Uh, the Lord who gives a perfect law, but our Lord who has sent a perfect Savior on our behalf. And so, Father, as we look to your perfect word, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, and that by your Spirit, uh, that you would teach us. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you look around uh, this morning, and our demographics look a little different than they normally do, it's because there's about 80 women from our church that are on a retreat at the beach this weekend. And so if you see a few dads, myself included, who look a little frayed at the edges, you will have some compassion and understand what we are going through this weekend. But in honor of having a higher proportion of males in attendance, uh, I have three sports-related illustrations uh, in the sermon this morning. So I am catering to my audience but my apologies if they do not connect uh, with your interest or preference. But let's start off with number one right now. When I was a sophomore in college, uh, I was the captain of the RUF Alabama co-ed flag football team. Um, I'm sure that RUF at Alabama has had some terrible football teams, but I'm not sure any were quite as bad as this one, we should have included that in the prayers of the people as Patrick, an Auburn grad, pay, play, or prayed for uh, the RUF at Alabama ministry. But my favorite, ministry, my favorite memory of the season occurred uh, when we played the BCM, the Baptist Campus Ministry. It was the Baptists versus the Presbyterians on the gridiron. And uh, while I think my team could have won a game of trivia based on the life and work of John Calvin, Uh, we were no match athletically for our Baptist brothers and sisters. And this was an unusually passionate 
BCM team. Uh, their captain, who had no doubt chugged a few Red Bulls in advance of the game, was a good athlete, and he was zealous to show us how committed he was to both beating us at being a Christian and in the game of football. And so he summoned both teams to midfield before the game, and he held an impromptu prayer meeting, was asking us if we had any prayer requests and exhorting us to play like we were saved. It was awkward, I'll admit it, but we went along with it, and uh, after the prayer meeting broke up, the beating began. Uh, with the BCM holding a 42 to nothing lead, our team was finally driving down the field. And we get close to the end zone, and our quarterback throws the ball into the end zone, and in typical RUF football fashion, our wide receiver is wide open and drops the pass. But in the smiling and good providence of God, Play happened to be shielded from the sight of the referee. The ball, bounced, the ball went between the hands of the receiver, bounced off the ground, and back up into, into the receiver's hands. And the ref signals touchdown. We are confused, but initially we began to cheer because we had finally scored on the Baptist. The captain of the other team is just livid. He's got veins popping out of his forehead, and he comes up to me and he says, Martin, you know that he dropped that pass. You need to tell the ref to change the call. That's not a touchdown. And so I smile at him and just say, well, it seems to me that the ref called it a touchdown. And if I'm going to play like I'm saved, then I don't need to question his authority. (laughs) And so I smile and walk back to our sideline. And keep in mind, there's probably 50 to 75 people who are out watching the game. And across the field, this guy yells, Martin, you say you're a Christian. Why don't you start acting like one? And so, while I will not address the question of who was or who was not acting like a Christian in this situation, what was my friend accusing me of? He was saying that my conduct was not in line with what I professed to be true. Or to put it in the words of our passage this morning, my conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The word that Paul uses in verse 14 for not in step is the word orthopedeo. It's a word that doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible and doesn't appear anywhere else in literature of this time. Some have speculated that Paul might have just made the word up himself. But it's where we get the word orthopedics from, right step. Paul is saying that Peter's steps are off. He's not walking in the right way. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. The first is to look at Peter's misstep. The second is for us to see Paul's corrective step. And the third is for us to see the proper steps of the gospel. So first, let's let's look at Peter's misstep. Where did Peter go wrong? If you remember... uh, Jason's sermon on verses 1 to 10, chapter 2, the controversy was this. Do Gentiles who become Christians now need to be circumcised? Uh, In addition to trusting in Jesus, do they now need to observe the Jewish law? And the answer from the meeting of the apostles in Jerusalem earlier in their chapter was no, that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. 
And further, that requiring Gentiles to observe Jewish law uh, was not just uh, not required, but that it was antithetical to the gospel. And so Paul was fighting for gospel freedom. And so this morning it says that Cephas, but Cephas is Peter, uh, this morning says that the meeting was not in Jerusalem, but rather was in Antioch. This is not the Jewish capital, but rather this is a large Gentile city. And the specific issue at hand uh, today is not circumcision, it's table fellowship. And so we have a different city, we have a different circumstance, a a different uh, specific issue uh, in this passage, but really, this is the same discussion that they had last week. How do Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians get along? For thousands of years, the Jewish people were set apart by their dietary laws. They had things they didn't touch, they didn't eat. They lived in a world where things were either clean or unclean. They were set apart from the world because they didn't have table fellowship with non-Jews. And so the obvious question is, what do you do when these people are now in the same church? You have the Jews and their dietary laws, and you have the Gentiles without. Thankfully, God gave us the answer. He gave it directly to Peter. If you remember back in Acts 10, God gave Peter a vision. Peter saw a great sheet descending from the heavens, and all types of animals and birds were on it. And Peter heard the voice of the Lord say, Rise, Peter, and eat. What God has made clean, do not call common. God told told Peter the dietary laws of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ. That they were signs pointing to a reality, the reality that is Jesus. And so it's not that those laws were just silly or superfluous, but that they had been done away with. They had been fulfilled in Christ. And so you are not clean or unclean because of what you eat or do not eat. You are clean because you have been declared clean in Jesus. And so our text says that Peter took this vision from Acts 10 and he began to eat with the Gentiles. You can imagine Peter in Antioch reclining at table, eating his first piece of bacon, and thinking, I have died and gone to heaven, that this is, a, this is what I've been missing out on. He thinks, I have Jesus and I have bacon. What else do I need in life? So we've got this festive occasion. Music is playing, people are dancing, Peter is finishing up his pulled pork sandwich, and in walk men from James. In walk those from the circumcision party. The guys from corporate come in and crash the party. The music stops, and Peter thinks, "Uh uh-oh, what have I done? Because for Peter, he's got his Gentile friends on one side of the room, and he's got his Jewish friends on the other side of the room, and he's got to choose which group do I go with? Verse 12 says that he was afraid, that he feared the circumcision party. Peter was a people pleaser. He didn't want the conflict, so he drew back and he separated himself from his new Gentile friends. And it's easy to vilify these circumcision party guys. It's easy to make them two-dimensional bad guys. But just think what it was like for them. Think about if you were a devout Jew at that time. Everything that you had spent your life following had now changed. 
thousands of years of beautiful history. You eat this, you're marked out by this, and now all cultural distinctions are gone. What do you do when you become a Christian? Do you turn in your library card? Do you get a new license? Do you stop being Jewish? So please realize that these were not the radicals coming in. This was the conservative party. These were the ethical and moral people. Their beliefs were rooted in the Bible. They wanted to hold on to tradition. And so before we look down our nose at them, we would do well to ask, would you and I have been in the same place as them? But don't just think of what it would have been like to be a Jew in that room, but also think, what was it like to be a Gentile? These were recent converts to Christianity. They were complete outsiders, and now they were at the same table with the people who used to shun them. And Peter, the leader of the early church, the guy who was Jesus' right-hand man, gets up from the table and leaves them. They look up and they say, Pete, where'd you go, man? I thought we were buddies. And the text says that it wasn't just Peter, but there were others, and even Barnabas. Even Barnabas pulled away from the table. You can sense Paul's disappointment. Even his beloved Barnabas went away. It's not certain, uh, but it's likely that Barnabas was on the church planting team for this church. He was with Peter in his missionary journeys, and so someone who was with them from the very beginning, one of their church planters, has pulled away from the table and is separated from them. We'll have more to say about Paul's reaction in a minute, but I want to make a quick point before we move on. And to think about what is driving Peter's actions. What is it that is causing him to act the way that he's acting? The text tells us it's fear. It's fear of rejection. He panics. He says, how can I make both of these groups, how can I make the people from James and these Gentiles, how can I make both of these groups like and accept me? Fear is what makes him go against what he knows to be true. Fear is what destroys his friendships. Fear is what fuels his racist behavior. Fear is what fuels his feeling of cultural superiority. Think about the life of Peter. What causes him to deny Jesus right before the crucifixion? It's fear. Fear makes a coward of him. And it does the same thing with you and me. One of the most probing and enlightening questions you can ask of yourself is what am I afraid of? Do I fear being abandoned? Do I fear being left alone? Do I fear the rejection of others? Do I have this deep fear that I'm insignificant? don't have meaning. If you want to start to make sense of life, start to make sense of crazy behaviors, look at your deep fears. Look at deep fears, what drives you, and things will begin to open up for you. There's much more that we could say there, but I want to move on to our second point. First, we see Peter's misstep, but now let's look at Paul's corrective step. 
And there's no way around the intensity and the awkwardness of this encounter. Here you have two pillars of the early church. You have these heroes of the faith, Peter and Paul, and they are face-to-face in front of everyone. It's interesting, the early church fathers really didn't know what to do with this. They were really almost embarrassed by this encounter because Paul is not mincing words with Peter. You might even consider this a little bit rude by the Apostle Paul. Paul had not completed his coursework in the peacemakers uh, curriculum yet, and uh, Matthew 18, the steps in Matthew 18, have been thrown out the window. Social norms are no longer here. You don't hear Paul going up to Peter saying, now Peter, what I heard you say was, you don't hear Peter or Paul going up to Peter say, "Now, now Peter, Would you correct me where I'm wrong here? Or, Peter, would you help me to see your side of the story? No, Paul goes ballistic. Paul opposes him to his face in public. Think about it this way. What does any parent do when they see their child in imminent danger? What would you do if you saw your child walking into oncoming traffic? You would yell, you would scream, people would be pushed out of the way, social norms would be tossed aside. You would do whatever it takes to get your child out of danger. This church is like Paul's child. They are venturing into the oncoming traffic of losing the gospel of grace. They are venturing into having two separate churches, and Paul will do whatever it takes to get them back. I grew up in Tuscaloosa, but I played Little League baseball in a neighboring town called Cottondale. And let's just say that the Cottondale Dixie Youth Baseball League was a cultural experience for me. Uh, There was great baseball there, but uh, there were some interesting characters that we met along the way. And it was during uh, my last year of playing in this league that I saw something that might have resembled this scene. It was in an afternoon game in about the fifth or the sixth inning, and our pitcher was having a really rough game. He was coming off of an arm uh, injury. He'd been out most of the season, and he was just having a bad game. And so I'm playing first base on Oak Cross, uh, uh, the field, and I see a commotion. And what I see is our head coach and the father of the pitcher in a fight. And just to set the scene for you a little bit, my coach is one of those guys who could have dressed up like Hulk Hogan for Halloween and not had to do much to look the part. Uh, he looked like he could bench press a Buick, but that he, he would always skip leg days at the gym. And he had that classic mid-90s mullet. It was business in the front, and it was party in the back. And he rounded out the look with a pretty sweet goatee. And so you can imagine him, but just think of the other guy as the mirror image of him. And so you had two Hulk Hogan-looking guys pushing and shoving each other, fingers poking, poking each other in the chest, throwing each other in the fence, and the other players and I are looking around thinking, where are the adults here? What happened was the dad of the player thought the coach was injuring his son by keeping him in and pitching, and he was going to do whatever it took to protect his child. Of course, you don't need to be a psychologist to figure out that there might have been some deeper issues at play here and that this was probably not their first fight in public, but this was an intense face-to-face confrontation, a parent protecting a child. 
But back to our text, what does Paul say to Peter about his behavior? Paul could have done something like this. He could have shamed him about his behavior. He could have said, Peter, you disgust me. You are such a terrible apostle. You are a terrible coward. You are such a hypocrite. You are two-faced. And I am sick of you. He could have thrown the Bible at him and said, here are the 12 things, 12 verses that you are breaking. He could have used his authority. I'm an apostle too. You need to listen to me. But what did he do? Paul is going for the sin beneath the sin. He's going for his heart and not just his behavior. He's saying, you're acting out of step with the gospel. That Peter's deeper issue is not that he is acting with racial, racial prejudice, but that he has forgotten the gospel. He's filled with fear. He thinks, I'm going to be rejected by one of these groups, and in his fear, he forgets what is true about him and what is true about the gospel. And so what did Peter forget? Rather, what did this reveal that Peter really believed. Paul says that you are out of step. You're not, you're not in step with the gospel. You've forgotten the truth. And so part three, verse 16, Paul gives us the proper gospel ordering of steps. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification is one of those Bible words we hear a lot about. You might not think much about it, but unless you understand justification, you won't understand the truths of the gospel, because justification answers the question, how can I be right with God? How can we be acceptable in God's sight? So Paul says, you are not justified. You are not made right with God through works of the law. Peter, you are not right with God because you eat meat or you don't eat meat. You are not right with God because you are circumcised. Your performance, your obedience, your conformity, your effort cannot make you right with God. Because this is how all the other religions of the world work. Your obedience, your devotion, your observance, that is what you offer to God. And if you are good enough, then you will be accepted. But the gospel is the exact opposite. It is not that you are made right with God through your obedience and your effort, but that you are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is not that we obey in order to be accepted, but rather that we are accepted out of sheer grace and then free to obey. What's wrong with Peter's actions? He is pulling away from, his pulling away from fellowship with the Gentiles is a way of him saying that faith in Jesus is not enough that you have to put on all of these works of the law in order to be a real Christian. What he has forgotten is his justification. That he is made right with God, not on account of his works, not on account of his effort, but on account of Jesus' work on his behalf that is credited to him by faith. A few years ago, we had a faith, faith men's golf scramble. And though it cannot be proven, I can say with relative confidence that uh, I am one of the worst golfers you have ever met in your entire life. Um, My claim to fame is that I have a slice that uh, even the most seasoned golf professionals cannot fix. But I enjoy golf. I enjoy the idea of being a golfer and being out on a golf course. And so I decided to play in the scramble. If you're not familiar with scramble, you play on a team of four. 
and each of you hit the same shot. You take the best shot, and then you do the same thing over again. Uh, and so there were two truths that were very apparent at this golf tournament on my team. The first truth was that I was placed on a team with Brent Dorner. And if you don't know Brent, Brent is one of our deacons um, who is a really, really good golfer and who happened to be playing really, really well that day. And the second truth was that I played one of the worst rounds of golf even for me. And so the entire round, not one of my shots was taken. Not a chip, a putt, and certainly not off the tee. And Brent hit big shot after big shot after big shot. The guy could not miss. And I couldn't do anything. Do you know what happened at the end of that round? Do you know what happened when all the scores were turned in? Is that his score became my score. That all of the terrible shots that I hit were erased, and it was as if I had hit every shot that he hit. Though I contributed nothing to my team, all I brought to the table were bad shots and lost balls. I won the tournament. I got that Chick-fil-A gift card. I was the champion of the Faith Men's Golf Scramble. On that day, Brent was my justification. Because I was on his team, because I was connected to him, I got everything that he earned. Though I didn't do a thing to deserve it. He did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He accomplished what I couldn't. The gospel says to you, because you are connected to Jesus, because you are accepted in Him, you are given His perfect record that is infinitely beyond what you could do for yourself. The gospel says that all you bring to your salvation is your inability and your sin. All you bring is your lack and your want. You are not made right with God by your effort, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the issue at hand here is one of ordering. It's a subtle difference that makes all the difference in the world. And to illustrate this, I'd like to use our membership vows. If you've been in a membership class recently, you know we talk a lot about this because it's just that big of a deal. And so if you're a member of this church, you have made these three vows. The first vow you've made, notice the order of these. The first vow you've made is do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope, saving his sovereign mercy. The first question is, will you admit that you're a sinner? Before the gospel ever makes sense, you have to admit that you're a sinner. The second question is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? The second question is, do you receive and rest upon Jesus alone for your salvation? The third question Do you resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of God that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? The third question, will you live for Jesus? Notice the order. I'm a sinner. I receive and rest upon Jesus alone for salvation, and now I can seek to live for him. It is not, I'm a sinner, and now I can seek to live for him, and if I do well enough, then I will be accepted. 
But that's the order we want to make it. That's the order that comes hardwired in all of us. That's the standard equipment in every human heart. This desire to justify ourselves. And we have to constantly remind ourselves of the correct order, of the proper steps of the gospel. That I'm a sinner. And through faith in Jesus Christ, I am accepted and loved. And now I am free to obey Him. Because we're always going to try to reorder the steps. Try to reorder the questions. You might leave here this morning believing that you're justified by faith alone, but tomorrow morning, I'm going to live. I'm going to live as though I've got to earn it, that I've got to save myself. And that's why the gospel is not just something that we believe when we become Christians, but rather is the power of God in us that transforms all aspects of our life. That the gospel changes absolutely everything in our life. It impacts how we parent, how we work. Relationships, our view of money and power. And it is the truth of the gospel that we need to be reminded of each week as we gather. We need to be reminded when we gather in this room and in other rooms. It's because we forget. That's why when we gather together every week, we confess our sins. That's why we come together and we admit to God that we are sinners, that we surrender to Him and admit that we cannot save ourselves. And that's why immediately after we confess our sins, we have God's declaration of pardon. We have His offer of complete forgiveness of our sins. You'll notice that in our order of worship every week, between confession and forgiveness, there is not the prayer of promising to do better this week. We come and we are receivers of pardon. We come and we say together, we receive your great mercy, O God. We come empty-handed. We don't come to God saying, God, we promise we're going to earn it this week. God, we're going to offer to you our great performance. But no, we receive with empty hands His mercy. And we get this at the table every week. There are no remedial tables with extra portions of bread and wine for really big sinners. There are no VIP tables for the super spiritual. There is no rich or poor. There is no Jew or Gentile, no man or woman. All distinctions have been done away with. The cross levels us. We all come to the Lord's table with empty hands, receiving His body and His blood. And to come to the table is in itself an act of reordering. To come to the table is to admit that you cannot save yourself and that you trust in Jesus to save you. In our text this morning, we had a table. A table of rejection. A table of division. But this morning, in our service, we have a different table. We have a table where all of those who trust in Christ are welcome to receive the grace of God as we partake of his body and his blood together. Let's pray. Father, again, we are thankful for your word to us. We are thankful that you have come to us and provided all that is needed for our salvation.
And so help us to believe that. Remind us again of your constant unfailing love to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.